Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Grand Challenge lecture and features Professor Toby Walsh. Toby Walsh is Scientia Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales and Data 61 and Guest Professor at the Technical University of Berlin. He was named by the Australian newspaper as one of the rock stars of Australia's digital revolution. And Toby Walsh is a strong advocate for limits to ensure AI is used to improve our lives. He is a fellow of the Australia Academy of Science and recipient of the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Excellence in Engineering and ICT. His lecture, recorded on Friday the 15th of March, is entitled Your AI Future. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge Lecture. Uh, thank you. Uh, I have to say, my daughter finds it hilarious that anyone would consider me uh, as a rock star. I don't own any leather jackets. I certainly don't behave like a rock star. And, and I rarely get called the one and only, especially because I have a twin brother. <laughs> but uh, thank you for braving the weather. Um, I hope it's not raining when you, you need to go home. Um, but uh, I'd like to talk about your AI future. Um, I spent my whole life, um, ever since I was a young boy, reading too much science fiction, dreaming about building AI, um, and it really is now probably the most exciting time to be working in the subject. You, you can't open a newspaper without reading more stories about how AI is starting to do new tasks, and useful, useful tasks, um, and exciting progress being made, and, and lots of interesting opportunities. Um, I, I was invited... Um, to talk on Q&A recently, though, um, so I, I immediately accepted. I thought it would be really fun to be on live TV, meet Tony Jones. He's just like um, he comes across on camera. Um, top tip, though. Um, so I accepted very quickly, and then the, a week later, just before the show, I, I, you know, they rang me up and told me who else was going to be on the panel. I was thinking this was going to be one of the science Q&As, but, but it was the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. So the other guests were a sex therapist, a sex clown, Canadian comedian, and a very strident feminist. So I was the straight white guy. Uh, but it is, it is very exciting. There's immense um, opportunity um, that this poses. And in fact, um, uh, we're, we're, we're actually releasing in two weeks' time, I can reveal today, actually, two weeks' time, um, I've been chairing a, um, an expert working group for the Learned Academies to, at the request of the Prime Minister to write a... a um, a plan about the opportunities and challenges that AI offer to, to Australia. And that um, you'll be seeing, hopefully, quite a lot of news about that. And hopefully, the government, whoever they happen to be in the future, are going to respond by investing, um, seizing the opportunities that we're, we're pointing out. The opportunities are immense. It really is um, worth pointing out the scale that um, AI is going to be. Uh, Price Coopers in 2017 did a study. They estimated it was going to potentially add around over $15 trillion to the world's GDP. Now, most of us don't think in trillions of dollars. Most of us don't think in millions or billions. But, um, and that, just, that wealth was going to be not um, uniformly distributed. There were countries like China, who might be getting a huge rate increase to their GDP. Countries like Australia, we're looking at 10 or 15%. By 2030, that is. This is in real terms. Um, but to put that in context, first of all, 10 or 15% is probably about half the total economic growth we can expect. 
um, in, those, in those years. But what about the $15 trillion? What, what is $15 trillion? Well, it's a new continent. The current GDP of China and India added together is actually $15 trillion. So it's as though we've discovered a new land um, that is actually going to change the economics of the planet. Um, and so it really is a big deal. It's not, it's not just uh, a hype, although there's a huge amount, I must admit, there is a huge amount of hype, and we certainly can't live up to some of the, ex some of the Hollywoodish expectations. But it is a big deal. The last time we, we um, discovered a new continent or, or discovered people living in an existing continent, that was a big deal to the planet. It made a big impact upon um, the world. Um, and how it was run. So it, it's going to be a significant difference. Let me lay to rest the one concern that Hollywood would have you believe, which is the robots are going to take over. The robots are not going to take over anytime soon. Robots have no desires of their own. They do exactly what we tell them to do. That normally is the problem. We haven't thought carefully through what we've told them to do. And any of you, uh, the few, a few of you I recognize in the room who are programmers, will know that computers are the most literal devices. They do literally what we tell them to do, and that's the frustrating thing about programming computers. They stubbornly do exactly what you've told them to do, and that's not quite exactly what you want. Um, so the machines aren't going to rise up anytime soon. In fact, I'm actually much more worried about the stupidity of the AI that we build today, that we'll be giving responsibility to machines actually that aren't capable enough to have that responsibility, and not the smartness of machines. In fact, the smarter machines get, in some sense, the fewer problems we will often have. And they certainly have no consciousness, no desires of their own. So why is it, though, today I get to stand up in front of you and talk about this not 30 years ago when I started in the field? Why is it today that you're hearing so much about AI? And that's a story of four exponentials, in some sense. You can explain much of what, what's happening in terms of Four exponential trends, and I'm, I'm a scientist, so I love putting up graphs. This is the first exponential trend. It's a very familiar one. It, and many of you will know what this is. It has a name. It's called Moore's Law. Every two years or so, it's the doubling in transistor count that roughly translates to a doubling in compute power that we've seen way back to the beginning of transistor computers, in fact, before transistor, back to valve computers for more than 50 years. We've seen every 18 months, two years, a doubling in compute power. Now, this graph may not look that familiar, because normally when you see a graph of Moore's law, it's plotted with a logarithmic, a compressed scale, 1, 10, 100,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, a compressed logarithmic scale to fit it onto a nice graph. Here I've plotted it with a straightforward linear scale just to show you how rapidly exponentials climb away from you. But even that's, you know, even this graph really doesn't capture it. So I've got a nice... Uh, a, a nice uh, analogy to give to you um, that will perhaps help you understand what it really means to see 50 years of exponential growth every two years. Right? And the idea is to think about walking. If I walk one meter in the first minute, two meters in the second minute, and I carry on like that, well, in three minutes, I've traveled four meters. In 10 minutes, I'm a kilometer away, over a kilometer, to actually 1,024 meters in the 10th minute. In 20 minutes, I'm a good distance towards Melbourne. And in 30 minutes, I've gone to the moon and back. Exponentials really do start creeping up. And you know, of course, all of these exponentials will finish because we'll run into 
physical limits. In fact, we're starting to run into those physical limits already with Moore's law. Moore's law actually, I can tell you, um, is officially dead. It's, uh, it's an empirical law. There's no law of physics that requires us to double transistor count every two, two years. It was just an observation that, that Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, made that actually then turned into fact and actually turned into, into the roadmap for the semiconductor industry. Um, and they worked out how they were going to design chips, how they were going to shrink them to double the transistor count. We're running into the quantum limits, the fact that you can only shrink things down to the wavelength of light. Otherwise, you, you, the, 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 you have quantum uncertainty in, in, in how those circuits are going to behave. So they're not going to be able to shrink the circuits much further. And so they're not trying. And since it's not in the roadmap anymore, you can guarantee no one's going to be spending the billions of dollars to build the fat plants to actually continue to double transistor count. I'm not overly worried, though, that that means we're going to run out of compute power. We will continue to see more compute power. We'll have to work a bit harder. You've already seen that there's much more innovation in how we design chips. We see GPUs, TPUs, lots of more interesting architectures. We'll see quantum computing coming, hopefully, before too long. So there's lots of things, lots of other things that will give us compute power um, that will help us continue to scale. So that was the first thing, Moore's law, doubling every year in the compute power, broadly speaking. The second exponential is the similar law for data, the amount of data we're collecting. A lot of what we're doing in AI these days is using machine learning. That requires lots of data. But the last 10 or so years or more years, we've been collecting lots more data. As many corporations are waking up to the idea that one of the most valuable things that they have is the data about the, their customers and their operations. And we're increasingly collecting that data so we can actually make better and better decisions based upon all that data. Interesting enough, this is doubling every two years. All, in fact, all of the exponentials I'm going to show you um, in the next couple of slides are doubling every two years, which is an interesting coincidence. There's no, there's no fundamental reason why all of these exponentials have to be doubling every two years. It's, a, it's, a nice, it's easy to remember because they happen to be. Um, but there's no... There's no connection, really, as far as I can tell, between them. But that was the second exponential, data. The third exponential, running for far fewer years, but at least for the last five or six years, is in the performance of the algorithms that we've been developing. Here is an example. This is a standard benchmark in, in AI. This is ImageNet. This is you're given a picture, and you want to identify the objects in the picture. There's a cyclist. There's a car. There's a pedestrian. If you're going to build an autonomous car, You've got to do this problem quite well. Um, and we've seen a doubling in performance, again, roughly every two years, in the algorithms that we have to do that. And a lot of that's been driven by things like deep learning that I'll talk about in a second. You see back in 2010, the error rate was one in four images. One in four images we were misclassifying. You're going to kill a lot of pedestrians and cyclists if you're one in four times you're misclassifying them. But every two years since then, the error rate's been halving, the, the one, in, one in eight, one in 16 or so, one in 15, uh, one in 30 or so. Um, there's a thin red line on that graph. That's an important red line on this graph because uh, on those particular set of images, that's how well humans do. So we're actually now perceiving the world at superhuman level. And that's one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why Autonomous cars will ultimately be better at driving than you are because they'll perceive the world more accurately than you will. They'll also you know, perceive the world in wavelengths that you don't see the world in. They'll be quicker. They'll be laser fast. There's lots of reasons why 
ultimately we are terrible drivers and cars will ultimately be better drivers than us and that will be a good news for most of us. And the final, the fourth, I promise you four exponentials, the fourth exponential, the first three so far have been all about technology. Better, al better algorithms, more data, faster computers. The third, ex fourth exponential has nothing to do with, our, with technology, it's, it's actually money. The amount of money flowing into the field, again, for the last uh, eight or nine years, that's been doubling every two years. That means more people, more, more projects going on, more work going on. You put those four things in a pot together, and that really is a recipe for making significant progress, building on all the, all the work that we've been doing the last 50 or odd years in AI, to making significant progress to the goal of building machines that do tasks that require some sort of intelligence. And we are making significant progress. I think many people sort of started to pay notice uh, about three or four years ago, um, especially when Computer Go became better than humans. That was a landmark moment when AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole, one of the best Go players uh, on the planet, and then beat the, um, the, the, the Chinese player, uh, Fei Li, uh, the following year. Uh, that was a landmark moment. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of the New York Times, because 20 years earlier, 1997, when Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion, one of the best chess players has ever lived, was beaten by IBM's Deep Blue, there was a, an interesting, consoling uh, article in the New York Times that said, well, it's okay, mankind, we haven't left, lost, lost our dominance yet, AI is not yet succeeding because we haven't solved the much more technically challenging game of Go, the oldest strategy game on the planet, several thousand years of history, much more challenging in a combinatorial sense than, than chess. There are more games of Go than atoms in the universe. Um, so technically a much more challenging, much more subtle game than chess. Um, and so then back in 1997, they said, you know, till we solve the game of, of Go, we're not succeeding. But we have solved the game of Go now. We can now play Go better than any human. Now actually the Go players, Go programs are just so much better than humans. We don't stand, not even, not even the best players on the planet stand a chance uh, beating, uh, uh, beating the, the best Go players. In fact, the Chinese now call AlphaGo a Go god. It's playing, it's actually playing moves that humans in several thousand years of Go have never seen. And it's interesting to reflect for a moment, well, how could that be? How, how could we write a program that would play Go better than us? Because if we knew how to play Go better, well, we could program the computer to do that, right? So, so how, how, how could it be we program a, a computer better than we can play Go ourselves? And the reason is that we program computers to learn, to learn from their experiences. And if you think about it, that's how much of your intelligence happened. You weren't born able to read or write or do arithmetic or do many of the things that you do, intellectual, cognitive things that you do. You learned all those things, and that's increasingly what we're getting computers to do. And AlphaGo was, was given the ability to learn from playing games of Go. And then the, the good thing and the easy thing about writing computer games is, of course, you can get the program to play itself. One side will lose and one side will win. And you say, well, let's do more of those winning moves and less of those losing moves. And because it's a computer, it can do that much faster than humans. It can play thousands of games a second. You can play thousands of games on thousands of computers every second, so millions of games. Um, and ultimately, it plays more Go than a human could play. 
And actually it got, it's a, quite a slow learner, but it got to see more Go than a human could see in a lifetime of playing Go. And in fact, if every one of you in this room played Go, from the moment you were born to the moment you die, you wouldn't have played as many games of Go as AlphaGo did. So it's just seen more Go than humans possibly conceivably could in a lifetime, or even all of you in a lifetime of playing Go. And that's how it got to be better at playing Go. It just knows more about Go. It's seen more Go. Uh, a lot of that is machine learning. As I said, it's about learning from those experiences. And a lot of that uses a particular type of machine learning that you hear a lot about is deep learning that's very good at solving perceptive tasks, very good at perceiving the world, seeing objects in the world. That, that task I mentioned at the start, recognizing cyclists and pedestrians and cars, but also looking at a Go board and saying, that looks like a winning position, that looks like a losing position. Go masters really can't explain uh, what they've learned, but they can look at a board, look at a position, look at the stones on a board and say, that looks like good or bad, but they don't really have a good way of describing it, just like we don't have a good way of describing how we see the world. So there's a lot, a lot of possible applications that are starting to appear. This is just a little a nice infographic I found of all the startup companies using AI in all the different areas, from agriculture to marketing, from fintech um, to mining. It's, 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 it's hard to think of an aspect of our lives uh, that it isn't going to touch. Actually, this infographic is not, uh, this is just for Israel, just a small little country like Israel. You can imagine uh, what it might be like for a similar infographic you could make for Australia, uh, and you wouldn't be able to see the, 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 the icons if you did it for somewhere like the United States or China. Uh, and there's, so, there's an immense great, what some people call an AI race, I'm not sure that's the right way to describe it, but immense great uh, opportunities being posed by AI ad. Lots of companies are investing hugely in this space. I mean, you saw the graph of the doubling of investment, but you can see, not surprisingly, there's lots of the big tech players investing hundreds of millions of, of dollars to, to buy up talent. And there's not, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, if this is a in some sense, something that's going to change the very fabric of our society. And yet, it's estimated there are less than 10,000 people on the planet today, like myself, who have a PhD in AI. Who, who, who in the room's got a PhD in AI? Well, we've, got a, we've got a fraction of the, the world's talent already in this room. But, but it's, it's remarkable to think that you've got a, you've, 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 you've got a technology where there's just so, and that has consequences that we need to worry and think about, where, where there's such a small pool of people with the expertise, and yet it's starting to change so many aspects of our lives. And just to give you an example, I'm going to pick a, pick a couple of examples out of Australia. These all examples are taken out of Australia of, of how AI is actually already infiltrating parts of our lives, and we don't realize. It's actually quite an invisible technology. Um, we don't realize it. So this is anyone who's did their tax return recently or in the last year, for the last couple of years, actually, um, the ATO have a very nice little chatbot. Uh, it's called Alex. The nice thing about the chatbot, although they've got a sort of feminine-like picture, Alex is not a female name. It's a, right, it's a male or female name. Right? We should be deeply concerned that all the chatbots get, get and, and, and assistants get called Siri and Alexa and female names. We just, it's, it's good to see that sometimes people realize that that's rather insidious. But that's a little AI. A chatbot is a little bit of AI to understand natural language, written text or spoken text, 
you have to have a bit of intelligence. It required a bit of your intel intelligence to learn how to speak and read and write. So a little bit of AI required to have a chatbot that doesn't really deeply understand what you say, but understands it enough to answer the sorts of regular questions that people feeling filling their tax returns in. And increasingly, you'll find many businesses are using chatbots to help do the front line of their, their customer service. Uh, another example uh, from my lab, um, we've instrumented the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, we've put lots of little sensors that listen to the vibrations as the trucks go over it and, and work out where it needs to be maintained, where the bolts need to be changed, where, where um, because we can't afford to build a new one, um, and uh, we're going to have to make that. The bridge has already passed its supposed lifetime of 100 years, um, but we're going to have to make that bridge essentially last forever. But we can do that um, if we can work out where it needs to be repaired. And we've, we've instrumented the bridge with sensors, and of course then we use machine learning to identify, okay, given those vibrations, what does that tell us about which parts of the bridge to go and look at to check to go and repair? Uh, another example, um, a good example of, of the interesting but somewhat challenging things you can do is um, increasingly we have lots of data. I mentioned about how we have lots of data. Well, you can use that data to make predictions about what's going to happen. And police forces, for example, the New South Wales police force, uh, are using programs like this to predict where crime is going to take place. Now that's, on one level, quite sounds like a quite a good thing. We can't have police people in all places at, at all times, so let's put them in the places where they can actually have the most visibility, where crime is most likely to take place, and where we can actually do the most good. So that's all very good. But we have some fundamental challenges here. First of all, we don't have the ground truth. We don't know where crime took place. We have all this historical data, about the, crime, the crimes that we found and prosecuted. But that doesn't tell us where crime actually took place. There's lots of crime that took place that we never saw. And so maybe we went to particular poor neighborhoods or particular neighborhoods that had lots of indigenous people in them, and, and we stopped lots of people of particular racial minorities more often than, than Caucasians like myself. And so maybe we have actually a very biased sample of where the crime took place. And one of the challenges we have is that, certainly today, the, these machine learning algorithms can't explain themselves and don't have any idea how to deal with these, these historical biases. And so if we're not careful, we will bake in the historical bias of the system in which that data was collected and perpetuate that force. Um, so we have to be very careful um, in designing these systems that we don't perpetuate some of these biases that we've spent the last 100 years actually trying to, in many cases, trying to get out of our society and now hand them over to machines that can't explain themselves and can't be held accountable for those sorts of decisions. Uh, an example from my own work um, is it's not just about making predictions about the future, although a lot of what we're doing at the moment is about, is about making predictions, is about, is about um, you know, perceiving the world, making those sorts of decisions. Uh, there's a lot we can do about actually making good decisions. Uh, we work a lot with some very large multinational companies, helping them optimize their supply chain, where to send their trucks to minimize the amount of distance the trucks have to travel. We have a rule of thumb. We can go into a business, any business that hasn't yet used uh, some of our sorts of tools to optimize uh, their routes, and we can save 10% of their travel costs. 
we've worked with companies that spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on transport costs. So that's a big difference, 40-odd million dollars a year to their bottom line profit that they get because they don't travel, uh, they don't send the trucks, they send the trucks more intelligently around all the shops um, to deliver all the goods. So that's very good for their bottom line. It's also very good for the planet because that's 10% less CO2. That's 10% less uh, fuel they have to burn to do the same amount of uh, deliveries. But before we get too carried away, I always want to bring people's expectations down. We can do a lot of interesting things. The algorithms are not that smart, but they can nevertheless do interesting things today. But we've got a huge great distance to go. 40, 50, 100, 200, maybe more years, we don't know, before we can build machines that really are as capable as humans. And there, there are some things, really simple things, that still we struggle with. This is a, a robot that can fold towels. It was built by some colleagues at the University of California at Berkeley. It takes 25 minutes to fold a towel. There's this well-known thing, it's called Moravac's paradox. The easy things for us, like folding a towel, can be really hard for computers. We have millions of years of evolution into our motor centers that allow us to do that really quite challenging task. Whereas the hard things for us, like playing chess or the game of Go, translating German into English, those things that we struggle to do, uh, those can sometimes be surprisingly easy to get computers to do. But it's going to have a big impact. There's lots of dire predictions being made, and I'm going to talk for a few moments about, about how you should take many of these predictions with a pinch of short, pinch, pinch of sort. Um, from economists, not from technologists like myself, not from people who know how we struggle to fold towels, but, but people like the chief economist of the Bank of England, someone you would hope uh, knows what he's doing, although given what ha happens in England these days, no one knows what they're doing over there. But um, making predictions that, you know, 15 million of the 30 million adult jobs in the UK are a risk of automation. Lots of numbers have been thrown around, similar numbers um, in Australia. 45% of jobs was the prediction come, that came out of CEDAR. Um, now, I'm a scientist, so I go and look at the data that these predictions are made. Now, the first thing you have to know is that is that economists have used machine learning to make these predictions. So the job of predicting the jobs to be automated has already been automated. There's a certain irony in that. But that means we have to look carefully at the training set. What was the data it was trained on? And some of the data is just plainly false. So one of the, one of the predictions they have is that with 98% probability, the job of being a bicycle repair person will be automated in the next two decades. I can give you three good reasons why there is no chance that the job of repairing bicycles can be automated anytime soon. The first reason is I've asked colleagues everywhere, I've asked people here at QUT, no one on the planet I've been able to find is working on building a bicycle repair robot. No one. Now, we could set ourselves the challenge of building a bicycle repair robot, but it would be a real challenge. Anyone who's repaired a bicycle knows it's a really difficult, fiddly thing. And unfortunately, bicycle repair people are not well paid. So we're going to have to build a really expensive robot to replace a not very well paid person. It just doesn't make economic sense. And then the third reason is I was telling this story to a friend of mine. She owns a bicycle shop. And she said, oh, well, interesting, Toby, but we lose money repairing bicycles. I said, ah. Oh. So um, just out of interest, why do you repair bicycles? 
She says, oh, it's to get people in the shop. It's to build a relationship. It's to tell them about the bicycle routes, to sell them a bit of a kit, and eventually to sell them their next bicycle. That's a social job. We're going to do that with people, not with robots. It's about building relationships. So many levels in which we're not going to do that. Another job that was predicted with 95% probability was model. Now, we cannot build robots today, at least, that can walk in high heels. I understand that's quite a challenging task. But even if we could, well, we can't. I mean, obviously, we can build a robot that can walk. You've see, we've seen videos of robots walking. But we don't care what robots look like in clothes. We worry what humans look like in clothes. So there's very little chance that at least the catwalk models are going to be replaced anytime soon. So there's lots of, lots of jobs that won't be changed. Um, that we will choose, uh, or won't be, that we choose humans still to do, even if we can get robots to do them, that, that it won't make economic sense, or we'll just prefer humans still to do them. And then all these studies, all these economist predictions about the dire impact it's going to have on work, ignore all the jobs that are going to be created. The history of the last hundred years of technology have there been many more jobs get created than ever get destroyed. The world's population is historical high levels. Unemployment around the world is at 4 or 5% in most developed countries, historical low levels. So obviously, we've created lots of new jobs in factories and offices and doing strange things like social media promotion and smartphone app development, things that didn't exist 20 years ago because we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have social media. So we've invented lots of jobs. Of course, that's no guarantee that um, that's going to be true necessarily going forward. There's no necessity that history repeats itself. Um, but there will certainly be lots of jobs created. We, no one has any idea, though, anyone who pretends, that, any economist who pretends that they have any real insight as to what that balance is going to be is, is just fooling themselves. We really don't understand what the jobs are going to be in the future, what technologies we're going to invent to know what jobs are going to exist. So... Um, there are certainly will be, though, some jobs that will go. I mean, it's clear that there will be some jobs that go. And being a driver, I think, is probably, a, I would say, is probably got a high probability in 20 years' time. We're not going to be paying many people to drive because it's going to be far cheaper, far safer to have robots doing the driving. And we're already seeing uh, a race to develop. This is Uber's autonomous taxi um, to develop uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, every time you get in an Uber, the most expensive thing in the Uber is the driver in the front. Uber want to scale like every other internet business. They have made it very clear that, um, that uh, they're going to have autonomous taxis very soon. And for most of us, for you know, most of this audience, that's great news. Ubers are going to be the prices of buses. Uh, we're going to get the mobility to the elderly, to the young, to the disabled um, that the rest of us take for granted. But if you are someone who earns your living as an Uber driver, I suspect, you know, that's the, one of the newest jobs on the planet. It's likely one of the shortest-lived jobs on the planet. Uh, and we are seeing some of that happen today already. Uh, NAB, at the end of last year, announced record profits and also announced that they were laying off 6,000 members of staff to deal with the digitalization of much of their business and that they were hiring 2,000 new people with the right digital skills. Now, that's rather bad optics for NAB. You have to ask themselves, how come they didn't? Maybe the NAB is the wrong size as a business. Maybe they do need to lay off 4,000 people to be the right size to be competitive. But there were 2,000 people they didn't need to lay off if they had had the foresight 
to make sure that those people, the most invaluable thing in a company and its people, um, had been reskilled with the appropriate digital skills. So those are the sorts of important conversations we should be having is, you know, what are the appropriate skills? Um, it's pretty certain um, that we will need the new jobs that get created will require different skills to the old jobs. So how do we prepare people for that? Uh, as another example, I mean, Australia is, is world, leading, world leading in many aspects. We have some of the most automated minds on the planet. Companies like Rio Tinto and BHP have been um, very progressive in doing that, and that's actually been fantastic for our economy because, as we were talking about earlier, we don't have low wages in this, in this, this country. Um, given the way that raw commodity prices have gone, we'd have actually had to close quite a few of those mines if we hadn't have made them more efficient by making them more autonomous. And so, for example, five of the, uh, five of the mines in the Pilbara now have only autonomous trucks, these big uh, house-sized trucks that drive around digging the dirt, driving the dirt around. They're fully autonomous, um, and they're, that has a great economic benefit, of course. They're not paying wages for those people. Those trucks drive around. Um, they, they drive much more safely and efficiently. They use the, use the brakes and tires up less as well. But it's had those sorts of efficiencies have also had a really positive, it's not just an economic effect, it's, it's had a really positive effect on safety. It used to be several hundred people would die every year in the mines of Australia. Last year it was three dozen people, mostly because we've got people out of harm's way, mostly because there are fewer people actually in the coalface, there are more machines doing the dirty, dangerous work. Uh, and as another example, uh, a really good example, we have the longest robot in the world here in Australia, um, quite recently, Rio Tinto announced that, the, um, that they're running um, the, the coal in, into and out of the Pilbara um, using 34 autonomous trains, auto haul it's called. Um, you might have seen um, that uh, they spent, it was a bit, the project turned out to be a bit more expensive than they intended. I think they were supposed to spend somewhere around $400 million doing it. They ended up spending somewhere north of a billion dollars. Um, but they're quite happy with the, the return. That can't be because um, they're saving people's wages. You know, a couple of hundred train drivers um, have lost their jobs as a consequence of that. That's 20 or 30 million dollars a year in wages. You don't spend a billion dollars to save 20 or 30 million dollars. You spend a billion dollars for two other reasons that they're already seeing. One is um, safety. You might have seen last year there was, a, was, there was a, an interesting accident where one of the trains ran away when one of the human drivers got out before, before they were fully autonomous, and there was a big accident, they had to, um, they had to close the line down for, for several weeks or months, that cost 300-odd million dollars just to deal with that one incident. And the, the trains are going to be much safer. They're not going to have those accidents, um, hopefully, um, now that they're autonomous. Um, and then the second thing, so that's, that's the first thing, is that it's going to be far safer far fewer accidents and far less money lost to those accidents. Um, and the second thing is the throughput. They reckon they're getting 20% or more throughput on the line because the trains drive more smoothly, faster, and they can get um, that, the bottleneck of, actually, of the production is actually um, the single train track into the Pilbara uh, down to the port. And so actually, you know, they're getting billions of dollars of coal through that train track. So increasing productivity by 15 or 20% is, uh, is worth investing a billion dollars for. 
I just want to end by, by some of the other challenges um, that we have to worry about as we start to hand over these decisions to machines. At the end of the day, they're not very, as I said, they're not very smart. A lot of it just, is just lots of statistics on big sets of data. And you can do some interesting things if you look at statistics on big sets of data. Um, uh, you can learn a lot about the planet. Um, so you can learn that people don't really think very highly of professors. I can assure you, um, well, only, well, at least one of those things is false. I mean, I'm not overpaid. We're not being professors. We're not that well paid. All the other things you may decide are true. But um, I, can live, I can live with what Google and what statistics think about me. But there are um, many more worrying things that you see when you actually look at, look at what, the, what sort of machine learning will, will you know, this is, you know, Google's machine learning is predicting what you need to type tech next. Um, you know, and it will say some disturbing things. Um, because if you search on the web and you look at the data, the sets of uh, uh, web pages on the, on the web, you, this is what you will learn from it because it doesn't actually understand what the words mean. It's just statistics. Uh, and some of these things are very troubling, things that we do have to worry about, about how, they, how they're going to impact upon our society. So here's something you can do today. Good example of what you can do. You can do anything, pretty much, that requires a moment's thought. So we can label photographs. If you open up Google Photos, it will label photographs for you. It will tell you, here's a skyscraper, here's an aeroplane, here's a car. Right? Remember, here are bicycles, here are cars, here are pedestrians. We could do that automatically. Something that requires a moment's thought. Those are the sort of things we can get computers to do. But they're doing it using statistics. They don't understand what they're saying. They don't understand, this is a true example taken from Google Photos, they don't how, understand how deeply offensive, racist, and upsetting it is to label a black person as a gorilla. And when this happened, of course, Google took it down immediately. They weren't able to fix it, because it's just statistics at the end of the day. The only way, actually, they ended up fixing this was removing the label gorilla. So even gorillas don't get labeled gorillas anymore. That's the only way. It doesn't have any common sense, any understanding that this was something you should just never do. Uh, and equally, um, they're going to break in ways that, that's one way that you know, computers break. That they didn't have any deep understanding of the language that they were working with. They'll break, they, they're very brittle. Computers still are incredibly brittle. The AIs we write are still incredibly brittle. And they're breaking ways that humans never do. These are some stop signs that people have put so just a little couple of stickers on. They've turned stop signs into 60-mile-an-hour signs, according to the computer. Now, no human, no one in the audience here would ever be fooled by this. Of course, there's ways I can fool. I can hack your vision system. That's optical illusions. There's lots of examples of optical illusions that will fool our vision systems, but they're completely different ways that the computer vision systems fail, that these little stickers turn stop signs into 60-kilometer-an-hour signs, which, of course you're building autonomous cars is something that you have to be somewhat concerned about. Um, I'm going to end there. I think uh, we have time for some questions. Uh, just to say, um, I've written a new book. It's called 2062, um, about many of these topics, about, about the impact that AI is going to have on our society, some of the things I touched upon just now. It's called 2062 um, for three reasons. The first reason is that that's when I polled 300 of my colleagues. That's when they, they thought, on average, that machines would be as smart as humans. The, there was huge uncertainty. 8% of them said never. Um, some of them said 100, 200 years. That's, I think I would agree with those people. Um, 
But no one was saying, no one was really suggesting it was going to happen in the next 10 years. We've still got a huge, great way to go to build machines as smart as us, but the machines we can build today can already do useful things, narrow-focused tasks that can take over aspects of our lives. But it's not a 1,000 years away. It's somewhere in the next 50 or 100 years. It's something that might happen in our, in our children's life, or maybe if we're lucky, and even in our lifetimes. And the second reason it's called 2062 is I was explaining what the book was about to my daughter. She's, she was eight at the time. I was saying, well, it's about the world that you are going to inherit and the choices we need to make about how we use the technology to make sure that that's a better quality world. And then I did the maths. And in 2062, she'll be exactly my age. So it's very much the world our children will inherit. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.